Oh my gosh. Good morning. Good morning. Man, how about the weather, huh? The wet, oh my gosh. It went from like 80 to 20 like it's a cop. You know what I mean? On the side of the road. It went so fast. It's so cold outside out of nowhere. It's crazy. Um, folks, we have a lot to cover. We've got a lot to cover. That's, that's a spirit. It's a spirit working. Hold on, hold on. All right. It's part of it. Yeah, we planned for that. All right, cool. We good? All right. <laughs> so we have a lot to cover. So if we go over your preferred church time, like sermon time, you can find me out in the parking lot. You can beat me up after that. But um, anyway, here we go. We're going to get right to it. Let's go. Ready? Look at this box. Oh, joy. Look at this box. Look at this. Perfectly wrapped because my wife did it, and she uh, worked at Hallmark for a little while. Um, This box is beautiful, right? This box, you've been told your entire life, I don't care how old you are, you've been told your entire life that this box holds all the joy, all the hope, all the happiness you'll ever need. You can go through all these struggles and stuff, but you just got to keep going back to the box, right? Just keep going back to this box. And in, in this box, you might find some really cool things, like you dig into it, You see a job. You're like, oh, I get a job. It's a high-paying job, too. It's awesome. This is perfect. This is what I wanted. And then you get, like, a house. And then you get, like, a spouse. And a cat and a mouse and a Dr. Seuss book. No, I'm just kidding. No, you get all these things. There's money and all these dreams and and power and control. And it's all in this box. And you can get into the box at any time. But then you keep going back to this box. You keep searching it, right? You're like, well, I found happiness the first time. I found joy. So I'm going to keep going back to this box. This box represents non-eternal, worldly things. And not just possessions. Like I said, control, power, whatever it is. That you, these, these things that you desire of the flesh, right? And we dig so far into this box and we come to the bottom of it. This is our world. Everybody gets a box, right? This is our world. Everybody gets these things. Like look at the mountains, right? Look at the beaches that we have. Look at the, the things that you have in possession, We get to enjoy these things, right? But we keep digging into that box and get to the bottom of it, and we're just like, I'm still not happy. I put all my hope and I put all my joy, I put all my everything into this box, and I'm still not happy. And God will allow you to do that, by the way, right? He will. And we're going to dig into this a little bit more today as we dig into Matthew. Um, But you may have been in this box before. You might be in the box right now. You might be thinking about going back to the box, right, if you're in in a tough time. And we'll see if we can get you out of it, okay? So here we go. We're about to read different responses, several different responses to people or historical figures. I say historical because the Bible is historical. Figures that go into this box, and then they have these different responses to what happens when you get to the bottom of it, okay? But we're going to be in Matthew 26 and 27, so if you want to get your Bibles, we're going to read it anyway. You might have read this before. You might have gone through these verses before, but we're going to give a different perspective, okay? So here we go. Matthew 26, we're starting in verses 36 to 46, all right? Here we go. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. You know something here? He took those three again, Peter, James, John. Remember the transfiguration? A couple weeks ago, months ago, I have dad brain, so I can't remember when I did that last sermon, but transfiguration, he brought Peter, James, and John. 
And we're going to see what happens in a moment. Verse 30, now, and going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, not as, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch for me, with me for one hour, he asked Peter? Watch and pray so that you do not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it's not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come, and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. These guys love sleeping, don't they? Man, they were sleeping before the transfiguration too, which is interesting. We learned that in Luke. They're going up to talk to God or with God to talk to God, right? To talk to Moses and talk to Elijah at the transfiguration. And they're sleeping on their hike. Now they're sleeping again. They're not grasping the seriousness of what's going on here, right? Has anybody gone camping before? Yeah, same, right? So my wife and I used to go camping in the backcountry in a tent, right? <clears throat> and we weren't the smartest guys. We used to put, like, food in the tent. <laughs> I, why? But anyway, you know, you, kinda, you don't really sleep when you're camping out in the backcountry because, you know, there's something that can, like, eat me, like, at any moment, right? Like, something grab me out of the tent. So you kind of sleep with one eye open, right? These guys are, like, fast asleep, okay? Now, I get it. It's late, and there's a reason why they're saying this in the Bible right now. They're saying this... Because it's nighttime, they're very sleepy, their eyes are heavy, but Jesus is like, stay awake. Jesus is wide awake right now, and he's like, sleep and flesh go hand in hand. They usually go hand in hand. I was blind, but now I can see, right? I was of the flesh, but now I'm of the spirit, so now I'm awake. But you notice these guys are still sleeping. Very interesting, right? And then Jesus says he's, he's sorrowful, right? He's troubled. This is lamentation. There's a difference between sorrow and lamentation. Sorrow is usually self-pity or just like, oh, this stinks. I can't believe I have to do this. And he's like, please, don't let me do this. That's sorrow or self-pity, remorse. Lamentation is more along the lines of like, I know what I must do, and I'm sorrowful that the fact that I actually have to come into the world and I have to do this, that I know what's coming. I don't want to go on the cross. I don't want to die of vicious death. He, he, know, death. he knows it's coming. He was sweating blood, it says in a different gospel, right? But he's lamenting the fact that he, people have just not trusted in him. We keep walking away from him. We keep going back to the flesh. So he's actually lamenting this fact here. Now, in 47 to 50, I don't have up there, but uh, Judas comes and kisses Jesus. We all know this part, right? G Judas comes with like an army of dudes, right, with, with swords and clubs and stuff. And he kisses Jesus so he could tell people who Jesus is, so they can come and capture him. All right? But in verse 50, it's interesting. Verse 50, Jesus knew what was going on here. He knew what had to happen. And he said, do what you came for, friend. Okay? In verse 50. Or friend, why have you come? Right? He calls him friend. We get mad at Judas a lot. Like, we don't even, like, name our kids Judas anymore. Like, you know what I mean? Like, we try to separate ourselves from the name Judas a lot. Like, Judas is just like, oh, my gosh, I don't want to have anything to that man. But how often are we like Judas? Seriously, think about it. How often do we get so caught up in this world and on the non-eternal things 
that we do whatever it takes to continue to get those things. And if we don't, we'll do more to get it. That's exactly what Judas did, right? But we have these little things called grace and mercy. Grace given for these times where we know we fall short and mercy to be reconciled and redeemed for that. Okay, but notice what Jesus says here. He says, friend, he still has compassion for Judas. He knows what Judas is doing. He knows what he's going to do, and he has compassion for him. What a God. Seriously, what kind of God does that? There is no other God like that. All right, verses 51 to 56. Here we go. Let's keep moving. Then the men stepped forward. I think these are a different translation. But anyway, then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companion reached for his sword, drew it out, struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that, it's, that say it must happen in this way? In that hour, Jesus said to the crowd, am I leading a rebellion that you've come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching. Why didn't you get me there, right? And you did not arrest me. But this is all taking place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. Now we learn about this whole sword situation was Peter. We hear this in, in the book of John. Peter was the one, here, here we go again, right? We pick on Peter a lot. Poor guy. He pulled out a sword. He cut off an ear, right? He relied back on his own faith, okay? He was zealous for God. Like, oh my gosh, yeah, Peter, I, I would fight for, for God just like Peter did. I would make sure that God's not going to be killed and crucified, right? We say that stuff, and we're like, yeah, it seems pretty good on the outside, but it was all for selfish motive, right? It was all for selfishness. He did not want Jesus to leave him. He wasn't thinking of the big eternal picture that all of us sitting in this room and everybody that lived at the time and everybody that lived afterwards and before have this redemption in Christ. He wasn't thinking on that. He was thinking about his own faith and how much he wanted Jesus around, okay? Now, Jesus is like, don't you think I could just send a legion of armies, uh, of angels? A legion, how do I say this? I'm a Bostonian, so let me, let me think of it this way. A legion is um, an army that's like wicked big, okay? I don't know if that gives you some context, all right? Roughly 6,000 foot soldiers and 700 horses, okay? All right? Jason, he, he picked on me the other week. He sent me a meme about the Boston accent, so I had to put this in in spite here. No, um, no but Jesus could have stopped all this. He could have just been like, you know what? I don't want to go through this. You know what? Just die. Everyone is gone, right? And then they're all disappeared, and then it's heaven, new creation, new earth, right? He could have done that, but he was thinking eternally. He was thinking for everybody sitting in here. He was thinking for everybody that was there, even the people that were going against him, including Judas. He was thinking about everybody, because he was in the courts preaching, and they didn't seize him there. They chose to go at nighttime and pick him up. Weird. But that's for the writings to be fulfilled, the prophecies to be fulfilled. Fulfilled. Now, the rest of them, they fled, and he allowed that to happen. You notice that? It said at the end that they deserted him. He was standing there. They all took off in the woods. One was, like, naked, too, or something. It's weird. So, like, ran into the woods. He made sure that his sheep were taken care of. He allowed them to desert him. And he stood there like, yeah, I'll take it. I'll take the blame. I'll take everything. I'll take all your sins. Come capture me. Leave them alone. 
That's the good shepherd. That's Jesus. That's the God we worship. It's amazing. Now, if you notice something, we forsake God. God does not forsake us, period. We forsake God all the time. We desert him. We walk away from him. We think selfishly. We think worldly. We think, we think non-eternal. And he never forsakes us, and he never, ever forgets us. And it's proven here. Now we see Jesus captured, and here come some trials. I put trials in air quotes because they're not really trials. The first one, at least, is not. This is Jesus before the Sanhedrin, okay? So in verses 57 to 61, I'm just going to paraphrase here. The Sanhedrin were looking to charge Jesus. So they had all these false witnesses come his way, like right in front of him, and I say all these lies, essentially, to catch him because they had nothing on him. He was perfect, right? They had false witnesses in 1661 that say, finally two came forward and declared, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. This is what Satan does to us. Satan takes God's words and twists them. He didn't say he was going to like pick apart the temple. The temple was his body, right? The temple was his body. He knew he was going to die. In three days, he was going to rise back up, and the temple was going to be made new again. Okay? But that's what Satan does, and that's what we people do, you know, when we have these selfish motives. Now, there's a reason why I mentioned nighttime earlier. It's really important, because the religious leaders were doing this illegally. This was illegal. It's against Jewish law to hold a trial at nighttime, middle of the night. Can't do it, all right? You can, you can hold somebody, right? We have some people in law here, right? You can hold somebody and detain them if they're a threat to the public. You can do that. You can hold them and just make sure they don't like, kill somebody else or something, right? But you can't have a trial until the daytime. You have to have everybody awake. Everybody has to be coherent, and everybody has to actually be in part with this, with this uh, trial, okay? So this is illegal, but why did they break their own laws? It's weird. Why would these religious leaders break their own laws? Envy of his power. Okay, and we're going to get to that in a little bit too. But they were so envious of Jesus that they had to bring false testimonies. They had to bring false witnesses. They had to make their own things up, and they had to do this illegally at nighttime. It's crazy. But Jesus showed excellent patience and humility here, didn't he? You know, many humans, including myself, would, like, panic in the situation. I'd be, like, sitting there, already pretty much taken away by people with clubs, and I'd be like, I'm innocent. I didn't do any of this, and these two guys, are, they're lying. They're lying. I didn't say I was going to tear it down, and I would try to express that, and I would try to express my innocence. But no, gee, what did Jesus do? He sat there silently, right? He was just like, he, it broke sound barriers, that silence. Jesus' silence broke sound barriers. Even though he could send a wicked big army of angels, right, down to, like, destroy everybody and take this pain away from him and take pain from, uh, from everybody and just make everything new, he didn't. He could have called out those false witnesses. He didn't. He stayed humble. His silence was so loud that it caused this high priest to say this next. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. He ran out of ideas. He's like, you know what? All this stuff is getting nowhere. I don't know what else to do. Now I'm going to charge you, Jesus, under oath of the living God, ironically, to tell me that you're the Messiah. 
This is his last attempt to charge him. So what happens? Verse 64 to 68. You have said so, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, from now on you'll see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One, coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes, right, which is a, a usual thing that when you're this blasphemy, it's like the worst thing ever. It's disgusting. So they tear their clothes, and you, you, it takes a long time to either hem them again or you have to get a new one, right? <laughs> you can't really just repair clothes back then, right? And he says, he has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death, they answered. Then they spit in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, Messiah, who hit you? Unbelievable. They straight up assaulted him, like straight up assaulted him. This trial held no legality. This was an illegal trial, and they're hitting him. They're spitting on him. They're, I don't even know if like, his eyes were like closed maybe because they asked, who hit you? right? Maybe he was praying. He was standing there. Maybe they were hitting him from the side. They were circling around him, right? And they're hitting him all over the place, and they say, who? Prophesy to us, Messiah. If you're the Messiah, if you're a prophet, that means you know who hit you, and then you can charge them, right? You ever hear of the uh, psychic who got into a car accident? You ever hear that? You can say that he never saw it coming, right? He's a fraud, right? The, the psychic's a fraud. Why even get in your car that day if you're going to get into a car accident? You should know this, right? But that's what they're doing. That's what they're saying here. They're like, listen, you're, the, you're a prophet. You're the Messiah. That means you know who hits you, right? So charge them. And he's like, he's staying silent. They were worried about the physical hit instead of the fact that they were all guilty. They were saying, oh, yeah, this person that assaulted them, you can prophesy to us. He, if he's a fraud, he won't know who hit him. And then they were worried about the whole physical aspect of this, this whole situation, but all of them were guilty without even hitting him. Crazy how much we don't, we don't realize about ourselves, right? All right, verses 69 and 75. I'm not going to read all this, but this is where, again, we've probably read all this before. Peter denies Jesus three times, okay? Three different people come up. They're like, hey, that's the guy that's been hanging out with Jesus. And he denies it three times, and he gets frustrated, and he curses. Not typical fruits of the Spirit that we hear in Galatians 5, 22 and 23, you know, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Peter didn't really illustrate that when he was denying Jesus three times, okay? If these fruits aren't bearing when we're in a bind, right, we might want to do a heart check, okay? Because we might be falling back on something else, not faith in something else, not of the Spirit, right? But don't get me wrong, we're human, I get it, we fall Peter fell. He was swearing and angry and all this stuff, and that's okay, and we're going to get to that in a second, but he denies him three times before the rooster crows, and it actually happens. Jesus said he was going to do that. Now, just remember, we just had the, the Last Supper, right? And Jesus actually told Peter that, hey, you're going to deny me three times because Peter's like, I love you, God, so much. Nothing's going to happen to you, right? I love you. I'll go to death for you. He's like, you're going to deny me three times, man. Like, what are you talking about? And he's like, what? And it actually happens, okay? So he's actually developing Peter's faith in a time of sorrow. It's crazy. We've talked about faith in God versus faith in self a lot lately, okay? This is kind of the number one thing, sovereignty of God or sovereignty of self. When you put faith back in yourself, bad things happen. Now, this is called sanctification, right? When God allows these things to happen, he's, it's, sanctification is like a spiritual training, or preparation 
for heaven. That's what sanctification means. It actually means, the word itself, set apart. He's setting us apart from darkness. When we choose Jesus Christ and we choose to follow him forever, now he's like, okay, I'm going to allow things to happen or I'm going to let, let these things happen where you're going to be trained. You're going to be understanding where you fall short so that you can continuously grow in your faith in me, in your trust in me. That's sanctification, okay? Now, the thing about sanctification, though, it comes with pain. It comes with pain, right? Let's pretend, actually, let's, in the Bible, let's refer back to the Bible. God calls himself the potter. We call God the potter a lot. And we are the clay, okay? Now, I haven't done this in a long time, right? But if you have, like, pretend you're, like, what are you, a potter, and you have a clay wheel in front of you, you have the clay, and you put in the foot, foot pedal, you put, like, a thumb in here, your pieces are falling off, and, like, you're trying to sculpt something beautiful, right? That's what God's doing to us. But you got to think, if clay had, like, nerves or something, right, and you're, like, fidgeting with the clay, and it's like, ow, you know, like, that's what the clay would be doing, right, if, if you were forming the clay into something beautiful. That's what God's doing in us, sanctification. He's forming us for something beautiful in heaven, okay? But we, Peter, especially right here, keeps falling back on his own faith. All right, rolling forward here. Matthew 27, switching chapters now, verses 1 to 10. Here we go. Early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people made their plans how to have Jesus executed. So they bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate the governor. Awful. This is during Passover week, right? When Judas, who betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said. I have betrayed innocent blood. What's that to us, they replied. That's your, that's your responsibility. That's your problem. So Judas threw the money back in the temple and left, and then he went away and he hanged himself. Verses 6 to 10 say that the chief priests couldn't use the money because it's blood money, and they hid it in a field called Field of Blood. This proved another prophecy to be true, which I believe is in Jeremiah. Judas did not repent here. This is not repent. He felt sorrow for himself. This was remorse. Remorse versus repentance, two different things, okay? Repentance is when we orient ourselves away from God or trust in God and putting faith in God. And we realize, and we're like, what am I doing? Wow, this is not good for me. And then you orient yourself back to God and recenter yourself. And you're like, you learn from that mistake and you continuously let the spirit work in you. That's repentance. Remorse is what Judas did here. Oh, I betrayed innocent blood. Woe is me. He was sad for himself. Oh, I did something wrong, right? And then he did something. He hanged himself. He took his own life because he was so full of remorse. It's interesting what he says. He says, I betrayed the innocent blood. I betrayed innocent blood. He didn't say, I betrayed the Messiah. Interesting choice of words, and we'll get to that later on. Now, Jesus faces Pontius Pilate. Yes, I say Pontius. You say Pontius, whatever. Potato, potato. Get over it. Verses 11 to 26. Here we go. <laughs> Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, Don't you hear the testimony they're bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Now, as the governor's custom, 
at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas, or Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release you, Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Messiah? For he knew it was out of self-interest that they handed Jesus over to him. Pontius Pilate was sitting here like, there ain't no way they're going to choose this guy, right? There's no way they're going to choose this murderer. Now, he, was, he wasn't like a murderer like a Ted Bundy or something, right? He was like a murderer as in like he was a rebel for the Jews. He was a rebel for the Jews. He did not want the Jews to be taken over by the Romans and to be led by the Romans and to be controlled by the Romans. It was a good cause for him, right? So he thought he was like King David. And so what he did was he murdered people, he coerced people, he lied to people, he did everything horrible in the name of God, okay? But wait a minute, did you guys catch that? His name was Jesus, too. Did you catch that? Jesus Barabbas, Jesus Barabbas, that's interesting, right? I don't know if he was named this afterwards, but Barabbas means son of the father. So he was Jesus, son of the father. So again, I don't know if he like decided that name change because he thought it was King David. He came from the lineage. I don't know. But either way, Pilate's sitting there like, yo, do you want worldly Jesus or do you want one true Messiah, King Jesus? Are you going to choose this guy who actually got a bunch of you killed because of his rebellious ways? Or are you going to choose this guy? He's been wonderful, peaceful, loving, healing, everything uplifting. I wonder who they choose. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> Verse 19. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent this message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I've suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. It seems like God was actually using a Gentile here who was uh, Pilate's wife, okay, to prove even more that Jesus is the Messiah. But the chief priest, verse 20, and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two, he asked again, do you want me to release to you, asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus, who is called the Messiah, Pilate asked. They all answered, crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed, asked Pilate. But they, all, they shouted all the louder, crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I'm innocent of this man's blood, he said, it's your responsibility. All the people answered, his blood is on us and our children. Whew. Then he released Barabbas to them, and he had Jesus flogged and handed over to be crucified. Pilate washed his own hands like that could save him. He used water, a worldly thing. Interesting to wash his own hands clean. This is, what, this is the old Roman thing to do, right? This is the old, the Roman Empire, which supposedly, I guess, men think about all the time. Is this like a thing? There's like a meme or something, right? <laughs> men think about the Roman Empire a lot. Yes, I do. Um, <laughs> uh, it's like a whole thing. It's like when you're like, I'm innocent of this decision. I'm, I'm making my decision, and it's hands off from now on. You wash your own hands, okay? A few weeks back, uh, Jason talked about Flavius Josephus. Right? He was a Roman historian and uh, Jewish, Jewish and Roman historian and military leader. And he wrote many books at the time because it was all about like history. He loved history. He wanted to make sure he documented everything. And a lot of it ties back to the Bible, which is really cool. But uh, he describes Pilate as like authoritative and headstrong, but then a little passive when things are on his shoulders. You notice that here? Same thing. Right? There was an uproar starting. 
So he's like, oh, okay, nope, blood's on you guys. I'm washing my hands for you this. He's passive. He put it off onto the relig religious leaders, okay? So it sounds like he's the pilot that we know. And then, according to Josephus, Pilate actually took his own life. Uh, he was ordered to take his own life because of uh, Emperor Caligula, in which he possibly did so. We're not sure, but that's, that's what was written. Now, this other part, this, like, I had to pray on this one because this was crazy that somebody would say this stuff. They all say, his blood is on us and our children. That's probably not a smart move when you're possibly going against God, right? Is it just me? Right? Like, that's crazy talk. But we don't want to think that Jews are cursed, okay? These are Jewish people. They are not cursed. What they're saying here is that I don't believe in Jesus I'm gonna, as, as a Messiah. I'm going to teach my children I don't believe in Je that they shouldn't believe in Jesus and I don't believe in Jesus. And then hopefully they'll teach their children and their children that they don't believe in Jesus. That's what that's saying. It's not saying they're cursed and that like their whole lineage is now kaput, right? <laughs> like it's just now they can't be saved. That's not saying that, okay? That chain can be broken at any time. One of the, the children can be like, you know, I saw everything. I actually do believe that the Messiah is the Messiah is Jesus Christ. So I'm going to follow him. And they could break that chain and teach their kids that. But that's what they're saying here. His blood is on us and our children. Because you would want his blood on you and your children, wouldn't you? I would. I want his blood to cleanse me. I want his blood to cleanse my children and their children and grandchildren and so on and so forth, right? That's what we would really want. But they were just like, nah, he's a regular guy. I don't care. His blood's on us, right? There were, but again, I, I really have to emphasize, the Jews are not cursed, okay? Like, anti-Semitism, all this stuff is not good. Je Jason said this a, a couple weeks back as well, right? This is not a nationality or race issue. It's a heart issue. Because there are so many Jews in the Bible that actually started following Jesus. That's how it started spreading. That's how Christianity became Christianity, okay? Started there, and it spread. First to the Jews, and then to the Gentiles, right? Okay? All right. Box. Remember this box? So cool. Right? Here we go. Remember what happened? Like, remember this, this box every day of your life, right? Every time you wake up. Because you don't want to put your full joy and happiness into this box. Here are four plus one different historical references, uh, responses to, to seeking the world or this box for true joy. Here we go. Number one, Peter, right? Peter was at the bottom of his box. He was at the bottom of his world. What did he do? His response? Fell back on his own faith. And then it, he fell back on his own faith. He fell asleep, didn't understand the seriousness of this whole situation, right? Instead of praying with Jesus, he fell asleep. And then he denied Jesus three times, which showed that Jesus was still in control because he knew Peter's true faith in him, right? Jesus prophesied that he was going to deny him three times, and it happened, but Peter was still on his own faith. He was still thinking about himself. He was still thinking about, woe is me. I want Jesus back, right? But that prophecy stuck in his head because it does say that Peter remembered that and he was sorrowful after. He was like, oh my gosh, like that, he's really the Messiah. He prophesied that. So I'm gonna, and then he started doing great things, right? So he was at the bottom of his box, but then he looked back up out of the box to the light. 
And he got rescued out, and he did amazing things for, for God going forward for Jesus. Number two, Judas. Judas at the bottom of his box, right? Contrary to Peter's response. He's at the bottom of the box. What's his response? Oh, what did I do? I betrayed innocent blood, right? Like he just sorrow, self-pity, and then took his own life. Judas was still able to repent, right? We might, hear, we might have heard this all along, right? Judas can still repent. He could have still repented. Yes, he could have. He could have spread the gospel. He could have went like this. You know what? This 30 bag, uh, pieces of silver that we learned now from Jason last week that bought a slave, that was enough money to buy a slave, throw it back at the chief priest and be like, I betrayed the Messiah. This was Christ, the Messiah, that I betrayed, and you are condemning. Start to follow him. He could have spread the gospel right then and there. But he didn't. He didn't. Judas still had the chance to fully repent. He could have done awesome things with Peter and Paul later on, and all these guys decided to take his own life. Number three, the chief priests and the religious leaders were envious of Jesus. They were losing control. They were losing control and money and all this power that they thought they had. They were in the bottom of the box and they're like dancing around like, this is great. The box is awesome in here. And then all of a sudden, like, people started like falling them into the box. Yeah, come on. It's great. It's dark. It's nice. And then all the people started going, looking up out of the box and then they started following Jesus like, no, this is so much better. This is so much better. And they started losing control, losing riches, losing uh, uh, power. And what was their response? Crucify God of all things you can do, right? And some religious leaders may have, like, after the fact, like, we hear, like, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, like, possibly following Christ and and loving God and believing, but most of them never looked up out of the box. They kept trying to go back to it for power. Number four, Pontius, Pontius Pilate. Pilate was under pressure from the world. He was under pressure from the Romans. He was under pressure from the Jews. He was under pressure of his own uh, pride and false power and his emperor and all these crazy things. And he even had Jesus standing in front of him right here. And he thought, he's like, oh my gosh, maybe this guy's legit. Like, and he's still not, I'm just going to wash my own hands. It's on them. I'm not going to do this, right? I don't, we don't know what happened to him after. We don't really hear of him like spreading the gospel per se, right? At least not in the canon. But he might have even taken his own life at the order of the world. Never looked up out of the box. Never did. And finally, Jesus, number five. I wish it was number seven. But number five, Jesus, right? Jesus never put himself into this box. We did. We put Jesus into the box, and we continuously do that all the time. He's another hobby for us sometimes, right? He's just another guy. I go to him as a genie or whatever you do, right? We sometimes do that. But he, he didn't put himself in there. He had to go in there. He had to go in there to rescue us. He came in the flesh, into our world, into our mess, and he's like, I'm not, I'm going to get these guys out of here. They just need to look up out of the box. We put him on the darkest place on the planet, mocked him on his, by his own, by, no, mocked by his own creation, hung on a cross, which is his own creation, and then resurrected from his own creation. But the difference is Jesus always looked up. You notice that? When he was in the garden, what was he doing? Praying. 
He prayed three times. He walked away. He's like, man, it's crazy out here. I'm, I, you guys stay awake and come pray with me. None of them came. He prayed. He showed patience, humility, instead of force like Peter, self-pity like Judas, envy and anger like the religious leaders, fear like Pilate. He asked for the cup to, to pass, but he willingly accepted and drank from it. Why? Because he loves us. That's it. He loves us so much that he's like, I will go into your mess. I will go into your mess. That's okay. And I will rescue you from that. Just believe in me. Just trust in me. That's reconciliation. That's redemption of a loving, amazing God. So today's big idea is Jesus shows us where we should always be looking. Jesus shows us where we should always be looking. We should always be seeking the kingdom. God's will, not my will to be done. God's will be done. We should be looking into the eternal things, not the non-eternal things for joy, hope, peace, and love that you're never really going to find in this. And I have one deep digging question for you today. At any moment, or in any good or bad situation, are you willing to look outside of the box or the world and look to the kingdom. When things are good, do we forget about God? We just keep going on our merry way. When things are bad, do we forsake God? Or just ask him, again, to be a genie and just get us out of something, and then don't go back to him. Don't trust in him, right? Ask yourself that question. And see, um, in Mere Christianity, which is an amazing book, by the way, it's a great foundational book for Christians, Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, C.S. says this, if I find myself in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. We are made eternal. We were made eternal. Believe it or not, Adam and Eve were not meant to die. They were meant to be forever with God. Right? We did a, an episode on our podcast, uh, the Holy Spirit Soapbox podcast, called God Allelogram. Got a logogram. He's smiling. He just, he just picked on me the other day about it. Got a, got a logogram, which essentially it's a God-shaped hole in our hearts, right? We all have a God-shaped hole in our hearts that we like to fill with things. We like to take, oh, well, I know I'll be happy if I put money in here, or what else? I know I'll be fun, happy if I get a house and a spouse and, a, and mountains and camping and all these things. We just throw it all in here, and it never fits. Do you know why? Because nobody knows the height, the depth, or the width of this hole in our heart, right? That then, once you actually give it to God and it fits in there, it overtakes the heart, then it overtakes the mind, and it overtakes the body and the spirit, and then that's your inward transformation that goes outwardly for the world to see. Jesus knew there was nothing here better than there, better than the kingdom. He knew that from the beginning. You know why? Because he saw it. He's been, this is the Boston accent again, he was in... The kingdom, he's been to heaven. He was there. He's like, oh my gosh, it's amazing. I can't wait to show these, the creation this. I can't wait to show my children this. I can't wait. What are they doing? Why are they looking only to the world for things? So then he had to come down. He's like, I will show you what the kingdom looks like if you just follow me, if you love me. And then guess what? You get to enjoy the kingdom even while you're here. He knew there was nothing here. So we have two choices. Two choices every day. 
We can keep searching around this box, this big old box of life, right? That's dark, four walls. I'm just like, okay, I know a billion bucks is in here. I know it. I know it. I'm going to keep looking. And then when you don't find it, you get that sorrow and self-pity. You can do that, or you could just look up. Because at the top of an open box, right, this thing here, this is actually, it's empty. There's nothing in it. We find out there's empty hope, there's empty peace, there's empty joy, empty everything. We can enjoy the things here, but we don't put all of our hope into it, okay? And when you look up out of an empty box, it's light, it's bright. Go that way. Always think eternally. Think eternally, eternally live eternally, okay? Now, I'm going to close up with a quick little funny story. Um, my buddy and I, of like 20 years, like my best friend, right? One of my best friends, because now my wife's my best friend, Jesus is my best friend. He knows he's getting pushed down the ladder. He doesn't care. He's a Christian, too. But anyway, best friend of 20 years. Uh, we have this running joke, because we used to watch a show, called Stargazer by Jack Horkheimer. Anybody? No, I know. It's like a PBS show or something. It's about like astronomy and like the stars and constellations. This guy named Jack, don't look him up because he did some weird stuff at the end of his life. But anyway, so he was, um, he would like be in there and he had like signature sign off. He'd be sitting on like a, a planet and he'd be like, and remember, keep looking up. Keep like, and that's like me and my buddy every time we walk by, we're like, keep looking up. And we used to do that stuff. And it's just funny. But at the same time, when I became a Christian. I was like, oh my gosh, I have to keep looking up. <laughs> that he was right all along. I don't even think he was a Christian, but he was right all along. So that's what we have to do. We have to walk like Jesus. We have to live like Jesus. We have to continue on forward like Jesus so that we can get to the kingdom because Jesus, Jesus is the only way home, period. So let's take our prayer postures and let's, let's talk to our creator. Our Father in heaven, thank you so much for this day. We thank you for the things of this earth that you give to us to, to enjoy every day. We know that you did it to, to show your love out of this overflow of your love to show that you love us so much you wanted to give us these good gifts. And we understand that, but we don't want to put our joy, don't want to put our hope and love and peace and all that into these things of this world because we know it's going to get us nowhere we pray that you can continuously show your glory in everything that we do, that we can go forward every single day for you as we live eternally, as we look to the heavens that, the same way that Jesus did, even in the midst of sorrow, even in the midst of lamentation, even in the midst of, of pain and suffering. He never stopped looking up. We know this about him because that is you. You gave us yourself to die for these things that we do, these, this orientation away from you, the sin that we continuously commit every single day. Father, we pray that you can continuously lead us away from ourselves. Forgive us when we do and lead us away from the temptations of this world, the temptations of non-eternal things so that we can start to think eternal and live eternal. We thank you and we praise you and we will worship you today with all of our might in Jesus Christ's holy name, amen.